an episode of Marvel A to Z. Uh, we are on episode number two. I am your host, James Bianco, and I am absolutely thrilled to have you. We've got a great bunch of themes and stories to discuss today that are all about the Black Knight. He's a character that is not not really anywhere near as big as some of the ones that you've seen on the big screen for the past few years, like Iron Man or Ant-Man that we talked about last time. But he has got some amazing stories. He's got a very unique sense of why he does what he does to him, something that really, I think, sets him apart from most other heroes. And his origin is not too bad either, and when I say that I mean inner universe as well as outer universe. They're both pretty interesting stories. So the reason that I wanted to start discussing him though, and why I thought now would be a good time to get into him, is primarily because there has been a film announced that's going to be a part of the Phase 4, I believe, of the Marvel Universe, and it's going to be called The Eternals. If you haven't heard of the Eternals, a very, very brief overview of who they are, or what they are, rather, is that they're sort of similar to Superman, they're the Superman, the people of Krypton in the Marvel Universe, because they were built or made by the Celestials, which are like, they're like gods in the Marvel Universe, and uh, they were built to keep order, keep peace, and to keep sorts of the demons as they were to keep those at bay and to make sure the earth stays safe so they're the eternals and they're definitely a cosmic thing they live for thousands upon thousands of years and they're going to make a movie about them which is it's just exciting i think they're going to be good they've got a good cast and it could be really well done and they actually announced that kit harrington who played Jon Snow in the Game of Thrones series, he's going to be playing the Black Knight in the Eternals movie. Now, if you don't know anything about the Eternals or the Black Knight, you might not really think much of that statement other than, okay, so the Black Knight's going to be in the Eternals, and that's true. But it's got a couple people a little confused because he was an Avenger for most of his life. He was also a Defender for a time. He didn't go on too many real solo missions, but he definitely doesn't appear in many Eternals, Eternals comics. That's just, he's not really known for being a part of that group. So I don't imagine that he'll be a part of the group in the movie, but he's going to be in the movie. There is one reason that he might make an appearance or be critical to the story, which is he does have a romantic relationship. And then also forms a special eternal bond with Cersei, who is one of the Avengers. And yes, Cersei, like in Game of Thrones, person named Cersei. There's a joke there probably, but I'm not going to make it. Uh, he forms an eternal special bond with one of them in one of the stories when Cersei's a part of the Avengers. And so that could come up as well. But anyway, at the same time, that's not a huge defining thing that happens to him. It's not one of his... I mean, it's one of his bigger stories. It's not the biggest story. It's a little surprising to us, um, you know, if you've read either The Eternals or The Black Knight, that this is where they're going to introduce him. It's a little strange, but I really do trust um, Kevin and, and, the, and the people over at Marvel who work on the films. They've all, honestly, pretty much been great across the board, so I don't really have too many misgivings about it. Okay, moving on from that real quick, the other reason that I wanted to talk about him is, frankly, he is underused. He doesn't have 
like he doesn't get to lead the charge very often. He has one series called The Black Knight that was out recently and did not last very long, unfortunately. That's probably why he's underused. But for most of his life, he's he's not necessarily in the background, but he's definitely not the star of a series or even a run. So I wanted to talk about him because who knows, maybe this will get more people reading his comics and uh, maybe we'll see more stuff that's centered around the Black Knight because he's an interesting character. He's got a very unique sense of inspiration for why he's doing what he's doing and also his aesthetic and his powers are pretty cool which we'll get into those in a bit so the first thing i wanted to say to start off this episode properly uh you know to get into the content i should say is there's a quotation that comes from avengers number 48 this was in 1968 so keep in mind avengers runs in well into the hundreds so 48 is relatively early on for them and this is something that dane whitman who is the Black Knight, will be discussing um, something that he says when he he finds, when the Black Knight persona finds him, rather. He says, I was called here for a purpose. I know that now. And, though I still cannot fathom that purpose, or the fate which may lie in store for me, yet here and now I do vow to give substance to the words spoken by Merlin. The Black Knight shall live again, through me. Sounds a little dramatic, probably, to start out this episode, but it does a good job of setting the stage for, like I said, the unique sense of inspiration and the catalyst for this character. What I want you to pay attention to here is that he says, it was called here for a purpose. I know that, but I don't know the purpose. I cannot fathom that purpose or the fate which may lie in store for me, but he still is ready to dedicate himself to the cause. And that's what I want to note here for that little quotation, which does come in his first appearance in the Avengers 48. That was back in 1968. So here's the basic overview of the Black Knight is that it is a title and there have been three of them that we're going to talk about. Theoretically, I don't know, there, there could be an infinite number. There could be very many. It is a title that is passed down through a familial line, like a bloodline, but there's only three that we need to talk about. So chronologically, the very first one was Sir Percy, the knight, and so he's the original, he's the origin, we'll get into him very quickly, and he's the one that started it all. Then we have Nathan Garrett, the villain. So he's someone of the bloodline, but he ends up being a villain that originally actually appears in a Giant Man comic, or Ant-Man comic, and I mean really early on, one of the first few. That's where he first makes his appearance. And then finally, we have Dane Whitman, the hero. He's the one we'll be talking about primarily. He was Nathan Garrett's nephew, so he follows the same bloodline as Sir Percy. So... Jumping right into Sir Percy of Scandia. This was written by the great Stan Lee in 1955. So this actually predates the Avengers, Ant-Man, Iron Man. This is a very old comic. It was only five issues long. It did not go uh, very long. But I'll say that it was really not bad for being in that age of comics. I'll be honest with you. I like the modern age of comics more than I like the Silver Age or the Golden Age, which is, you know the 50s, 60s, and so on, up till I think, 90s is where it became the modern age. I like new comics more, generally, 
But I really enjoy these comics. When I read them, it, it does a great job of setting up what feels like an entirely new universe. Because, so, you know, it's taken place in the times of King Arthur, actually. That is where most of the story happens, is Sir Percy is a knight serving under King Arthur. So it takes place back then, but it does such a good job of making it feel like a full world where there's different characters and countries that could come into play, just like the Marvel Universe does. And what's done so beautifully is once they implemented this character into, the, it was still the same age of comics, but into the modern world of Marvel, once they said, okay, this is his bloodline, like Black Knight existed in this universe in reality, it also is pretty seamless. Like that huge world came to collide with the one that we are observing when we read modern, and by modern I mean Marvel comics that take place in the day and age that they are published. So basically, he was a knight that pretended to be cowardly so he could get near the king and not be suspected, but his mission all along was to keep the king safe. Now, there's comics that came out years later that explained in greater detail why he was chosen by Merlin to come and keep the king safe. But, I mean, you know, as you would know, King Arthur did have a fair amount of enemies. Um, but it doesn't really matter, and they're not even discussed. Those reasons, particularly, I mean, they're not discussed in his origin story in those first five comics, so we don't have to get into all of them. Essentially, he shows up and he tells the king, as well as the other knights surrounding him, the whole court, basically, look, some people came and invaded my land, they killed my family, and he's the nephew of the king, and he, he says, I've got nothing left over there, it's been invaded, taken over, and I don't know how to fight, so I left. And he plays up how much of a coward he is, and I mean, that is just, it is really reiterated again and again. I'm a coward, I cannot fight, I'm weak, I get scared all the time, not so precise, but but I'm not exaggerating, it comes up every comic, and um, so King Arthur is just like a nice guy, and he's like, yeah, you know, your family, you can stay here, although you should have fought for your land, and the other knights, not King Arthur, but his knights, they hate him, and he, he's not a knight, Sir Percy, he's just one of the sirs of the courtyard, and he plays an instrument, and he's pretty witty, so some people like him, they think he's funny, and King Arthur seems to like him, but he always runs away when a fight's happening, and that's because he has to go don his armor that makes him the Black Knight. And even though this was a long time ago, both written in the 50s and taking place hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, rather, it's still very much so like Spider-Man, where you know, you, when danger happens, you have to play the coward and run away because you've got to go put on armor and hide your identity and play it off like, you know, you weren't involved or whatever. So that happens again and again. But he stayed close by and defended the king. Um, Merlin is the one who called him there, and he gave him an ebony blade that was made from a meteorite that had landed nearby. Now, this immediately starts the debate in my head about science versus magic. Is it science or magic, really? Because Merlin is obviously a wizard, but in the Marvel Universe, there's a lot of conflation with, you know, whether something is magic or science, and some people who are incredibly intelligent, like we discussed a little bit uh, in the last episode, Reed Richards, arguably, arguably top three, let's say, smartest characters in the Marvel Universe, he doesn't believe in magic at all. Doctor Doom, also very smart, he definitely does. Doctor Strange, he does. But he also explains that he's channeling energy from other dimensions. So is that just science? Because 
you can actually travel through other dimensions in the Marvel Universe and you're not doing anything magical. But it basically immediately started that debate in my brain of, okay, so is Erlen someone who is using science? Are they actually using magic? Does he even know? And this was the first instance, if you're saying chronologically in the Marvel timeline, the first instance in that age where someone is using things that could be described as as a very advanced scientific weaponry, but they're calling it magic. So anyway, that's something that if you really like, I guess, the if you want to learn about the origin of some of the big themes in the Marvel Universe, this might be a good comic to read, and, and you can get right into it in the Black Knight issue number one, honestly, from 1955. So he gives him the ebony blade, and it can cut through anything but another weapon made of the same material, which is made from this meteorite, and then perhaps not super advanced strong metals like vibranium, whatever, that they pull from Wakanda. So there's a few things that it can't pierce. For the most part, it can slice through anything. Um, there's other certain powers that it is embedded with, and for instance, Merlin tells him, as long as you are striking for the good of England and for King Arthur, it will not fail you. Now, that's sort of open-ended, like, okay, so if you're striking for what, like, the honor, the preservation of those things, and for England, which is such an abstract concept, it doesn't fail you? Can you fail in a fight, or do you just mean the blade won't break and a lot of new comics are really good at kind of what animes do where they get so detailed into like okay this can do this thing as long as this weapon is not longer than six foot but if you're holding it then it can't hurt you okay that doesn't make any sense but i'm just giving an example of how detailed it can be um a lot of new comics are good at that but old comics don't really take the time. And I'm and I'm kind of fine with it, to be honest. Like I said, yeah, it's a little open-ended, but I don't know what more you would expect to hear about the Ebony Blade. So, it can cut through anything, and eventually, he puts a curse on it, incidentally. He doesn't mean to, but Sir Percy uses it to spill so much blood, the blade does get cursed. And uh, we'll get into that later because it doesn't really affect Sir Percy, but the blade's cursed. So he spends these five comics just protecting the king, King Arthur, from everyone. People are trying to find out who the Black Knight is because there's uh, an evil nephew named Mordred, another one of the king's nephews, who wants to kill the king and take the throne. In the original story, I believe he was like an incestuous stepchild, which is part of the reason that he would be so inclined to do this, but that doesn't come up in the comics. Thank God. Um, but he makes many attempts on the king's life. The Black Knight knows it's him, and he always foils him, but he has no proof that it's him, and Mordred is one of the knights of the round table, so the king's not going to assume he's doing anything bad. He's, he doesn't ever come after Mordred. This doesn't ever get resolved because there were only five issues, However, he is able to successfully protect the king throughout. So that's where the story really ends. Is he just protecting the king? Mordor wants to take over. He's unsuccessful. Um, a few takeaways from this story before we get into what happened years later where they told a story that, that told us his death. One, the stories themselves. So they're good stories. Like I said, if you're in the mood for something that maybe is a little bit different than the typical hero story but you like Stanley's writing and you like old comics, then you should read them because they're enjoyable. There's only five. You can get through it pretty quickly. One of the funny things is that whenever they charge into battle, King Arthur's men, they all yell, pin dragon forever. 
Pendragon forever. That's King Arthur's last name in this story. But it's just, I mean, this obviously mirrors the Wakanda forever, which, so that, that was first said in Fantastic Four in 1965, where they introduced the Black Panther. So clearly Stan Lee reused his battle cry of Pendragon forever into Wakanda forever, which you probably know because it was such a big deal in the movies. Um, the other thing worth noting is that, honestly, Stanley did a great job of playing up his cowardice. He was, you know, he pretended to be so, uh, you know, I can't fight. I'm going to evade every single time that there's any sort of danger at all. But at the same time, he was a musician and he was extremely quick-witted and people laughed at his jokes and he actually took his secret to the grave. Just wants to note that. So, so he was really a, a talented guy. And I mean like a, a well-rounded figure, right? Because he he knows how to fight very well. He, we should we don't even have to get into all the details, but no one really stands a chance once it comes down to like one-on-one with any sort of weapon, whether it be on a horse or not. Like he's an excellent fighter. He can fight without weapons. He can fight with them. No one can really take on the Black Knight in a straight-up fight, even multiple people. So therefore, he's extremely talented. He's a formidable foe anyone trying to fight him. And then he also plays music, and the king loves it, and people think he's funny, quick-witted, he's clever. So look at this. Look at this guy, right? Like, look at him go. He's got a lot going for him. And and sadly, he does die. And we found that story much later. It's not told in those first five issues. But something's happened, and Mordred's really trying to take over the kingdom, and um, he he goes to find Mordred, and then he hears him behind him and he knows he's about to get stabbed and doesn't really explain how he knows he's going to get stabbed but he sees two visions instantly Merlin's probably showing him this one is that he turns around and he kills Mordred and then for a long long time the society as it were it just stays in the dark ages it stays in this age of knights and fighting and war and then the other alternative is that he dies, and he sees the age of heroes. He sees the modern age with, you know, medicine and electronics, but he also sees all the different heroes that will exist, and, you know, there will be times of peril, but everything will work out because there will be people who just care about people taking care of them and making sure that no villains are able to induce some cataclysmic apocalyptic event. So... It's a little open-ended, but it really, I think it's pretty beautifully done in the sense that he sees two different things that could occur depending on what action he takes. And because of those two visions that he has, he decides to, to not fight and he lets himself die. And he knows he's going to die, but he also knows this is going to usher in a new age. Because my theory is, and they don't even get into this, but my theory is that if he stayed around and protected King Arthur, who was a very, very successful king, and all of his people respected him, and he was there to keep everyone safe, maybe things wouldn't have gotten bad enough for there need to be progress that would get us to where we're at now. You could argue that's a bit of a stretch, but that's just my theory for those two things. Um, so he does die, but then Merlin is there, and he places a sort of mystical protection that says if Mordred ever comes back through whatever form, then Sir Percy will come back as well to make sure that the earth is protected from him. Uh, that comes up sort of 
a couple different times. Like, Sir Percy will act through an ancestor, kind of like Assassin's Creed in reverse. And it's pretty well done. But for the most part, this is Sir Percy's death. He does talk to ancestors later, and he even inhabits the Ebony Blade later. But, but that is his death, is he allows himself to die. And he asks Merlin as he's dying, was it worth it? And Merlin tells him that it was, and this is going to, in the end, everything's going to be okay, essentially. Which is pretty reassuring for his, his final moments. The next one that we want to talk about, and I didn't even intend to talk about Sir Percy that long, I apologize. But there's actually quite a bit there to unpack. But the next one that we want to talk about is uh, the villain named Nathan Garrett. He is more more cliche, a little easier to explain and understand, and his story begins in Tales to Astonish 52, uh, and that was in 1964. So this was one of the early Giant-Man or Ant-Man comics. He was an enemy, and he starts with just a common... Sh- I mean, he seems like a street thug, but then you find out that he has an ex- he's an expert in genetic mutation. He has a PhD, and he's selling secrets to communists, and he gets caught by a giant man, and then he flees the country. He was just a normal sort of criminal, but then he sees a statue of a wing, winged horse, and he has the idea to inject a stallion with eagle's blood. So he does that. It's successful. Now he has a horse that can fly. This trope right here. It is what so many villains do in these comics from like the 60s and the 70s in the sense that these villains come up with this amazing technology that could be patented and marketed and could change the universe or maybe this won't change the universe but you get the idea. It's a big thing and they just misuse it. They try and rob a bank or something. Ant-Man has a villain in these early comics called the Time Master or something. And he can literally change people's ages. Like, he can make you young or old. He makes Ant-Man old, and then he, like, runs away. But, I mean, when he makes this whole crowd old, he accidentally does it to his stepson. So then he undoes it, and he changes everyone's age back to normal. So you've just invented immortality, and you try to rob a bank? You could sell it to one single financially successful individual and never have to worry about money again. So this is something that a lot of the villains do, and it's not the most creative thing, but I I get it because villains are so disposable, they've got to come and go so fast, and then you've also got multiple heroes that you're writing, Marvel Comics and Atlas Comics during this age, so you've got a lot of villains you've got to produce, and I understand that, so... I'm not trying to be too critical of it, but that's what happens. He invents this amazing thing, and then, to take it even further, actually... He goes to um, he goes to a castle. It's it's his castle, uh, Garrett Castle in England, and he takes the time to like invent all these weapons, these super advanced weapons, like a lance that shoots out gas pellets and elect- electrical volts, bullets, whatever you can imagine. So he's got a winged horse. He's got all this armor, which is the Black Knight's armor, because you find he is a relative, and he's he's using this goofy technology. To rob banks rather than just selling a few of the ideas. But, okay, whatever. That's what villains do. That's fine. So, the reason that they're able to so successfully invoke this sense of familial duty and lineage throughout, unlike other stories, is that we find out later this this doesn't even happen in 
the time span that Nathan Garrett is alive, we don't even hear this story, but we hear it later, is that he did speak to Sir Percy once, and he was in Garrett Castle, which is obviously his, and it's in their family, he's the one he leaves to Dane when he, when he passes, but he speaks to him, Percy tells him to pull the ebony blade from the scabbard that it's sitting in, and he can't do it, and then Percy says, you know, you're unworthy, and that's why. And it's after this that he actually goes to his life of crime. So maybe it's that the ebony blade or whatever mystical power surrounds it could tell that he was that easily corrupted. But either way, he's not able to pick up the ebony blade. So he becomes the Black Knight and he does that basically to dishonor his family's heritage. And he builds his own weapons and he makes his own horse and he uses that to commit evil deeds and and steal stuff. And he joins the Masters of Evil for a little bit. So tries to take on the Avengers, just like, just really cliche, common villain type stuff, to be honest. That's all that he really does, and and why I think this so successfully invokes that sense of familial duty is that he is by far the least important of the Black Knights. He doesn't do anything significant, he doesn't succeed in committing any evil acts, and he he's definitely not revered, he's definitely not seen as a hero, so he goes at life, he goes at it all wrong, he's trying to pervert and corrupt this very honorable title and job and mission that's been passed down his family through the ages, and because of that, he's the least important of them all, no one remembers him, he's only around for a few years, and then some stories were told after his death, but he's a really insignificant character, so it's sort of tragic, but at the same time, it's appropriate. Eventually, he becomes, not really a regular, but he becomes a villain of Iron Man, and in a battle with Iron Man, he's got Iron Man, like, stuck to his flying horse, they both fall off, and Iron Man, I believe, tries to save him, but he's unsuccessful, and this results in Nathan Garrett, the evil Black Knight at the time, he falls down into some water, so he survives, but he's extremely wounded, He gets to a hospital somehow, they don't exactly explain that too well, but he gets to a hospital, he asks for his nephew to come, and that's Dane Whitman, and he tells Dane Whitman, look, I know that you know that I sell, I have sold secrets to the communists, I'm an enemy of the nation, I'm also a criminal, and he knows all this, but he doesn't know that he's the Black Knight, and again, the Black Knight he knows is clearly evil at this point, so he's like, I'm the Black Knight, and I want you to restore the legacy that I've corrupted. Please, like, take all my research and take all the weapons and do something better with it. And Dane Whitman, we find out, is all about it. All we really know about him at first is that he's got a master's degree in physics. This is later pretty much completely forgotten. I mean, it does not really come up again. But he does have a master's degree in physics, And he knew his uncle was a criminal, didn't know he was the Black Knight. And after he inherits all of his uncle's gear, he wants to do good, and he wants to meet the Avengers. It's not necessarily that he wants to join them right away, but he wants to meet them to see if there's something he can do, is the best way to put it, probably. So, that's that's Dane Whitman. And I do want to just formally say, we are pretty much done discussing Nathan Garrett. Like I said, it's, it's pretty meta that... He is the least important, there's not too much to discuss, he was only around for a few years, and he isn't able to accomplish very much. Sad, tragic, but he basically, basically the most important thing that he does is he passes his 
equipment, his research, and the title, and the castle, Garrett Castle, onto his nephew. Did he have a son or daughter who may have appropriately inherited it? We don't know. Um, can't really say. It doesn't come up. But Dane Whitman takes it on, and he becomes the new Black Knight. So first he goes to the Avengers, and they believe that it's the evil Black Knight, and they attack him. So they start sort of fighting, and it's a little bit goofy because... So, for instance, the, the Avengers are coming at him, and he's trying to defend himself. And so like he uses the lance, because he doesn't have the ebony blade at this point that we'll get into thoroughly in a little bit. He doesn't have that right now, so he's using the lance, and he's using his uncle's horse, and he, like, tries to shoot a warning shot, but it hits a chimney, and then bricks almost fall on people, but one of the Avengers saves the people who almost got crushed. So clearly he seems evil, and he's having no luck convincing them that he wants to help. They pretty much stay dubious of him, and then later on, they're kidnapped by the Masters of Evil, which is being led by Ultron, and he joins because... The Masters of Evil assume it's still Nathan Garrett. So he joins them and he's hearing all the plans and then he goes to warn the Avengers. And this basically gets the Avengers to trust him. It's enough so that they say, okay, he's a different guy. He's a good guy now. His gear is pretty much all the same at this point still. So I understand their reservations about trusting him. But um, after he's with the Avengers for some time, and there's no real huge stories to talk about at this point. The Avengers were a lot of fighting supervillains and fighting Kang the Conqueror, fighting aliens from time to time, and that's what he was doing for the most part. But after being with them for a time, he revisits Garrett Castle, which is the one that he inherited. And at this point, he meets Sir Percy. Now, this is a pretty huge moment because Sir Percy has been waiting for someone that was honorable and someone worthy to come around so he could pass on properly. Like, it's not just the title you know, it's its whole thing. It's the ebony blade, and it's it's that Sir Percy will sometimes actually go and inhabit the individual's body in their their own consciousness and take over. Not like not like aggressively or anything like that, but he's he's kind of there as a guiding spirit, and he'll talk to them. And he's been waiting around because he was obviously not going to be providing any support to Nathan Garrett, the villain, when he's the heroic and historical. Black Knight. You do find out later that it's, like I said, it's a title that's been passed many times. It's not like this is the first time it was passed on to someone else's Garrett Dane Whitman. No, it's been through the ages, and you see Black Knights that were dressed like it was the 1700s and around the Revolutionary War, and you've got some you know, later on during the 1800s. So it's it's pretty neat to see that it is, I, mean, I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of Maybe it's a little bit overused now that these powers are passed on and the titles are passed on because I know they've done the same thing with Moon Knight. They're obviously doing it with Spider-Man to a lesser extent because he did get started in the 60s. But basically, this is something that is historical. It's not just that it's passing on to friends or someone else who comes around whenever the powers are being doled out. No, it is passed on historically through this family lineage. So I think that's pretty cool, and I can definitely appreciate it. So he basically, he meets their person, he finds the ebony blade, and he is able to successfully pull it out of the scabbard. He beats some demon that approaches him uh, pretty easily with the ebony blade, and he finds out how powerful it is. 
and Sir Percy tells him that he's going to be around from now on, and Dan Whitman is cool with that, so he accepts this responsibility. He's pretty excited about it. That's the end of that. Later on, while he's still an Avenger, his mind gets taken over by the Enchantress, and it's not so much like like the Purple Man, which we discussed last time, which is someone who they tell you something and you have to listen. She's just a beautiful goddess, and so she is able to tempt people, seduce them, and make them listen to her. That's basically... I mean, she's also... She can cast different spells and stuff. She's actually a Thor villain. But the Enchantress is able to take him in and convince him to work for her. This is sort of appropriate because he's... A knight, so he does very well when he's working with Thor. They're both members of the Avengers at the same time, and they have some good stories together. At one point, he does go to Asgard with Thor. I've definitely got no problem with them sharing some villains or stories, comics, what have you. I'm fine with that, and I think it's done very well. But basically, when she's done, because she finds the Executioner, which is someone that she's typically with, she says, okay, I'm going to go do my own thing now. Thanks for your help. See ya, sucker. And he cannot take it, and he's like, oh, you're not going to leave me. Do not leave me. She's like, okay. And she comes over to kiss him, and when she does, he's turned into stone, which is like a stone statue. This is not the only time that he will be turned to stone, oddly enough. We find out later that he was actually sent back in the past to the 12th century, where he took part in the Crusades. There's a lot to unpack there about the character's motivations, but without getting into the historicity of the Crusades, we'll basically say that this is because he, he feels like he should be a knight, and when the Avengers finally make it there, we find out that he's been feeling at home this whole time. He refuses to leave. And that's also something that becomes a theme later on. And I think it's indicative of someone who is well-rounded and successful in whatever they attempt, like the original Sir Percy being so multi-talented, that he's just happy to to basically make a name for himself and stake out a future no matter where he is. And that's very difficult to find comfort and to be successful wherever life might bring you. But it's something that he does extremely well. So we'll get more into that a little bit later because it comes up again in his most recent story. But he is a part of the Crusades and there's a couple different stories that we get later on when he's there. He was in an ancestor's body, so it wasn't exactly him until later on when Cersei, the Eternal who he has that bond with, she comes back and she basically convinces the ancestor to go away for a time when she's there so they can both be there together and Dane will look and know that he is Dane, which is the modern Black Knight. And he leaves, but basically he is stuck there until later on when he dies and he's returned to the present. So he said, no, I don't want to go back at first, but then later on he's, he's killed. And so he's, he's sort of forced, he returns to the present. He's all good for quite a bit. Uh, the Ebony Blade is doing its normal thing. But there is an ebony curse. I'm going to get into the real details about it later. But basically, there is a curse that is at stake which will start to turn your body into the blade or an extension of the blade. And I know that's sort of cheesy and it's sort of hard to explain as well. But he starts to not be able to move without an exoskeleton providing him support. 
and if you touch him, you'll get cut, like literally start to bleed as if you're being sliced. So this is part of the Ebony Blade's curse, and it's it's sleeping, right? So it's not presenting a problem, and it's fine. And then the Ebony Blade is used by the Submariner, Namor, to kill his wife, who has become an evil sea monster. Again, a story for another time. But once it's used like that to kill somebody, and someone arguably who is not in control of their own actions, so perhaps spill the blood of an innocent, the Ebony Blade's curse comes back up, and he starts to freeze and become a part of the blade, and so, ironically enough, this is not the first time, like I said, that he's being turned to stone. Although it's not literally stone now, he just can't move. So he has trouble moving. He actually is still working with the Avengers at this point because he has an exoskeleton that's going to help support him. Um, but it, it comes and goes, and so sometimes he's able to move and sometimes he's not. This is definitely something worth talking about because it's so messy. And yes, it's a little bit frustrating because you wish that it was as simple as, okay, he can use the blade, but he can't kill somebody with it. Unless they're evil, then he can. But it's really messy. It's it's just spilling blood in the past, lock this negative energy into the blade, which is now liable to come up again. We don't know. And this, to me, makes it seem more realistic. Because one of the things you learn as you live your life is that things are never cut and dry and clear like you want them to be. Life is not a video game with an objective screen that says the first thing you need to do is go here. And once you get to this physical place, you'll be given a mission. And then once you complete it, you'll level up. If only it were that simple, right? That'd be great. But it's definitely not. So the fact of the matter is... Sometimes you don't know what you're supposed to do and things get complicated and things get sticky and situations are so complex and overwhelming that you think you're doing the right thing but you're not. That's how it is with the Ebony Blade. You don't even know if you're supposed to be, should you be using it at all. I mean, this was endowed to you by an ancestor who was obviously extremely honorable and a good guy. But does that mean you should be using it? Should you just put it away? For a time, it is actually replaced with a photon sword, which is essentially a laser sword. It's something that Dane creates because, again, he does have a master's in uh, physics, so it's not like he's an idiot or anything. So he builds it, and he uses this actually for a good amount of time. It Right now, there's still a curse on the blade, so he's forced to. It's during this time that oh, why I wanted to talk about the Eternals. Uh, begins to occur. So he's he's falling in love with Cersei, and, and she's in love with him. They're basically together, and she's she's a part of the Avengers, same as him. And then the Eternals show up. So you don't need to know all the event, all the Eternals' names or powers or anything like that. But safe to say, the leader is Icarus. He's got blonde hair, super strong, can shoot lasers and all that sort of just like regular superhero stuff honestly it's not too unique he's however very aggressive and he comes to Cersei and says you need to come with us because we need to get started on a process to help you you're going crazy now she knows she's going a little crazy but she does not want to leave and she says that she intends to form this special mental bond called the Gon Joseon 
which, you know, arguably can be pronounced differently, but it was made in a comic, so we're never going to know for sure. I'm going to call it the Ganjosen Bond. So she says, no, I'm going to enter into it with the Black Knight, with Dane, and that's going to help me. And Icarus is not having it because he says you can't bond with a human. It's meant for Eternals with Eternals. And the Avengers are like, well, you can't just take her away if she doesn't want to. And Icarus is ready to kick all their butts. And be like, no, she is coming with me. But Cersei's like, no, I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to bond mentally with Dane. He's going to help me bear the stress that is making me go crazy. Which, again, she can't exactly explain. And then everything's going to be fine. And it's sort of like when your kid is begging for something that they don't really want, need, or will enjoy... But they just finally wear you down. They're like, okay, fine. Here, have 20 chocolate chip cookies until they're sick. Because Icarus is like, all right, fine. You want to stay here. You want to bond with a human. Fine. Here you go. And he just does it right there. Like, Icarus does something to their heads. And they're bonded. They can share their thoughts. And they're sort of sharing a consciousness. Minutes later, I mean minutes later, the Black Knight is... He's done with it. He's like, she is crazy, and now I can see it, and I can feel it too. Why would she ask me to do this? This sucks, and she cannot take it. This definitely changed his whole persona, because his personality is is basically, it's not so jokey and lighthearted, but it's more like, it's more like Aragorn from Lord of the Rings, or just, it's more a soldier, right? He's a warrior. He's someone who has fought honorably for a very long time, It's what he's used to, and that sort of is definitely displayed in his personality. He's not really rude or or short-tempered with anyone, but now he's like a different person. And then he immediately starts hitting, I mean in the same comic this happened, he starts hitting on Crystal, who's one of the Inhumans that's a part of the Avengers. So that's sort of fishy that he's acting so strange and he's ready to like make a move on her and such. And Cersei's aware of it because they're sharing a consciousness. So that's just a whole another thing to consider when it comes to the relationship. However, they stay together. And it's during this time that he actually leaves the Marvel Universe and joins something called Ultra Force, which is it was only around for a very short period of time because it didn't do very well and it sort of existed outside the Marvel Universe. It was um it was a, a bunch of comics that Marvel had purchased to make stories about, and then they changed their mind because they didn't sell well. So we don't even need to get into what he did there. It doesn't really matter to the character's longevity, but. So Icarus forces him into this, which I do want to note just because it'd be so interesting. Icarus is going to be in the movie The Eternals, and he's going to be played by, I believe his name is Richard Madden, and he's the actor that plays King Rob, or Robert uh, Stark in Game of Thrones. So this is Jon Snow's, we believe, half-brother for most of it. Spoiler alert for Game of Thrones, but we find out, I guess, cousins actually later. Anyway, they're brothers. They're brothers for most of the show. They act like brothers, and we would be having we have Kit Harrington, Richard Madden acting side by side with, you know, Rob saying, "Oh, you know, you don't need to bond with this human," and then Jon Snow's character, the Black Knight, saying, "No, let's do it. It'll make her feel better." And he's like, "Okay, fine. Here you go." I would love to see that scene happen. I highly doubt that it's going to because, like I said, the Black Knight's an Avenger at this time and so is Cersei. So what, are we going to get that entire story happening 
all in one movie, which also has to introduce all of the Eternals. And Cersei is not even really the main Eternal. No, I don't think it's likely, but that would be fascinating to see. So that'd be interesting. So we do find out later on that the reason Cersei was going crazy is because the Black Knight from another dimension, an alternate universe, was plaguing her, was doing this to her. And he was doing it because in that universe, he fell in love with his universe's Cersei. And she broke up with him and ruined him because they had the bond going on. Then she breaks up with him, so he's messed up forever. So now he takes it upon himself to go through all the different dimensions and try and take out Cersei and also save himself, save the other Black Knights or Dane Whitmans. This is probably a good time to discuss how there are so many different dimensions and universes in the Marvel continuity. I think it was absolutely genius that they did this because, as we discussed a little bit last time, there's so many stories that you want to tell within this one universe or this one set of characters and, and stories and worlds and situations. But if you tell them all, some are going to contradict one another. So you have when it comes to, let's say, a, a, a franchise like Star Wars, you have stories that are considered canon and not canon. And, okay, so if you already know all this, if you follow enough fandoms, will say that you're very familiar with the difference between canon and non-canon stories. I apologize. Just bear with me for a couple minutes. I'll, I'll get through it as quickly as possible. But for anyone who doesn't know, because maybe they're new to the genre or it just hasn't, they haven't come across it yet, if a story is considered canon for something like Star Wars and is considered to have actually happened in the universe, in the continuity that we're seeing, if it's non-canon or now it's called Legends, since Disney bought it, they're calling everything non-canon Legends, it's a story that could have happened, but it, it didn't happen. So if a certain person died, or alternatively, if a certain person was born in Legends, they don't have to be shown in the movies or in future stories because it's just a it's a what if if anything it didn't necessarily happen marvel just totally circumnavigated that and i think they did it extremely well i really can't give them enough props for this plan it is that they introduced the concept of the multiverse of endless dimensions with endless variations of the characters so if you wanted to tell a story like Deadpool kills the Marvel Universe you can and that is an actual story and it's just Deadpool going through the Marvel Universe killing all the major heroes his impetus for this is unimportant but basically he, he wants to kill himself and he's not able to because of his healing factor so he thinks if he can kill the reason he's alive which is fighting with and for and against the heroes maybe he'll die that's all there is to that but you can show all those stories where he kills spider-man and he kills wolverine and he kills the punisher and it's not like you can't ever tell a story with them again because that was just a what if that was in this universe this happened but it was an alternative universe so there's another universe more recently there's a storyline just called thanos and in that version of the story in that universe Thanos wins and he's successful he's like the last living being in the universe it comes down to him uh, and the cosmic ghost rider and then eventually he's just Thanos so you can tell these stories and they feel like they hold more weight because 
maybe it's just me and my obsessive way that I take in fiction, but it's not like they're saying, this isn't happening in this fictional reality, but it's a story that could happen, so here's the story. They're saying this happened in one of the universes within the Marvel mythos and storyline, one of the dimensions that exists within Marvel. It is happening, and here's what happens. The main one we follow, and the one I'm talking about for most of this, is the 616 universe. But there's endless numbers, and in some of them, there could be slight variations on how somebody looks or someone's motivations. Maybe someone is a hero in another one. You have the freedom as a writer and creator to change anything you want without ruining hundreds, no, sorry, sorry, not hundreds, but decades of stories and hundreds of stories that have already been told. So I'm totally happy with that. It makes sense that they interact with one another and that this Dane Whitman that feels slighted by Cersei wants to come and do damage to the Cerseys of the other universes and also to save Dane Whitman's and other universes as well. So I'm, I'm happy with that. Eventually, they defeat him and they stay within the bond they have, the Gondrosum with one another, that, that maintains. But they do defeat the villainous Black Knight and he's no longer an issue. For a long time, he's working in the background. The primary Black Knight is working in the background. And he becomes a field leader later on, so he's given a bit more responsibility. But he's not the leader of the Avengers. He's definitely never the leader of the Avengers. So at some point, and like I said, th these stories go on for a very long time. There's probably there's probably decades of stories with him in the Avengers or Defenders and uh, just fighting alongside some of the really famous heroes. But one of the things that happens is that Doctor Strange is able to remove the Ebony Blade's curse altogether and he's able to begin using the blade again because Sir Percy took the curse into himself, basically absorbed all that energy and it's done. So it's basically not an issue. All the blood that Sir Percy spilt with it, that's his own thing. So he could recurse the blade, but the blade is no longer cursed. So now would probably be a good time to talk about the details of the Ebony Blade. We talked about where it comes from. It came from Merlin. It's been passed down. It's made from a certain meteorite that there's not a lot of on planet Earth. Uh, it can deflect magical attacks when it's angled right, so he's able to take on some of the really powerful people like, let's say, Doctor Strange or Doctor Doom or the Enchantress, supposedly, if he hadn't been an idiot. He could take on those people because he can deflect magical attacks. It can absorb actual energy, so there's your defense against someone like, let's say, Iron Man. Um, it can cut through any substance pretty much with very few exceptions to some of the you know otherworldly strong metals that happen in the Marvel Universe. It also has some magical ties to it, so like it can appear wherever the wielder is, or the person who wields it can suddenly appear where it is, so vice versa. That's pretty unique. It's not so much like Thor's hammer, where he calls it towards to him, which I believe can also be done with the blade, but it's, it's similar. So... This weapon is extremely unique, and it's almost a little stressful to get into it because, like I said, it's so messy. There's not really concrete rules for what you can and cannot do. But I can also take the time to appreciate and say well done for developing something that is so different from everything else within the Marvel Universe. There's really no weapon like this. 
Captain America's shield is without magical property. It is just specially designed metal, same as, let's say, Wolverine's claws. Uh, the one that's going to be mystical that probably people will go to is you have Doctor Strange with some various weapons, the Eye of Agamotto and whatnot, and then you have Thor's hammer. So, not like it's the it's not the only weapon out there that has magical properties, but they do an extremely good job of saying, look how confusing and messy this is, and how it could go either way, and it's a little stressful to read, but it does present a very unique situation, which can be refreshing, because sometimes Marvel tends to repeat itself. The basic summary, if you could just sum up everything about the blade concerning its curse, would be this. When it is used for evil deeds, or it spills too much blood, it begins lusting for more blood. This is what results in the Ebony Curse. The storyline that got most appropriately into this portion of the curse, and again, this is different than turning into the sword, which is the curse that Sir Percy uh, left it with. This curse just makes you, you want the blade. It's like the one ring from Lord of the Rings, and you also want to spill blood with the blade. That's what this curse is. And the most recent storyline to get into it is The Black Knight. That's what the series was called from 2015 by Frank Thierry. This takes place in... So it's not an alternate dimension, but it is a dimension within the Marvel 616 universe. So it really is happening in the 616 dimension. It's called Weird World. And... You don't even need to know that much about it, other than it's a little more like the time of Knights and Castles and Kings, and Dane goes there because he is being chased by the Avengers for uh, killing somebody. He he killed somebody with the blade because he just could not resist it, and he so he seems to be going a little crazy, which is also a good callback to his time bonding with Cersei. And it could even be that his proclivity to accepting the temptation of the blade is maybe that he had this bond with someone that went so crazy, but they don't really get into that, so we could just theorize about that personally. However, he is going a bit mad. He goes to this new dimension called Weird World, and he sees a king that he considers to be unjust, and I believe they're killing some of their like political rivals or people who might want to usurp the throne they believe so he definitely doesn't seem like a hero or anything and dane's not having it so dane kills him and the people who were under that king they're all for it they're like okay great he's our king now and what you find of course of course is he likes it there he does not want to leave when the avengers get there which is partly more understandable this time because they want to um, they want to punish him, essentially, maybe even imprison him, we're not really totally sure, because he, he killed somebody, and that, that somebody was a villain, just to be clear, it's not like he's going around murdering innocent people or anything, but that's just not how the Avengers operate, and definitely not when Captain America is at the helm, and Captain America is the leader at this point. So, they come, and after some fighting, and you know, he's obsessed with the blade, when he's not holding it, he he's not doing really well, and He's going a bit mad. But the Avengers do capture him. They put him in a cell there while they're discussing what the next move is. And he says the following, which I'm just going to read word for word because I think it, it really summarizes 
something something special about the blade we're about to get into. And he says the following. He says, I know you're all doing what you think is right. And yes, I know full well what the blade is doing to me. So there, I said it. I admitted it. But I also know someone needs to wield the blade. That it's too important. That someone must assume that responsibility, no matter the cost. And that someone is me. It has to be me. It's meant to be me. Why can't you people see that? He's obviously, sorry, done with the quotation. He's obviously desperate to have the blade, just to hold it and own it. And that's why, to me, this echoes Lord of the Rings story so much. And I think the writers are aware of that, so we'll get into why I think that in just a minute. But, so he's saying, I am well placed to take this curse on and to handle it. I can do it. I can deal with it. Well, they take the blade, the Avengers take it, and they decide to leave him there, because he doesn't want to leave, fine, leave him there, and just go back home. And within seconds, Captain America, the honorable, and, you know, the one who has not a shadow of evilness within him, not an inch, well, he starts to attack his friends with the blade. And he's like, no, you know, none of you can take this from me. It's mine. Get out of here. Whatever. He's in just like complete insanity. There is no justification for why he's attacking, who he's attacking. But he's going crazy and he's only had the blade for seconds. Dane has had it for years and he only attacks villains with it. So how does this echo Lord of the Rings? Simply, Frodo keeps the ring for a long, long while and though he's tempted at times by its seducing power, he remains honorable and on his mission, his primary mission, which is to use it for good or get rid of it, which is that is the good they can do is to just be done with it. But when other people pick it up, even if it is just for a few seconds, they're ready to run off with it. They're ready to put it on or like just go crazy, say, I'm going to rule the universe. So that's what this is, is Dane has it for a long time and he still only wants to use it to do good, although he is being corrupted by it. And there's others who have it for seconds, someone even as bright and as brave and as inspirational and as honorable and moral as Captain America, they still fall to the temptation of the blade in seconds. So that shows just how perfect it is that Dane has it. What they eventually realize is that they need to let him keep the blade, basically. He's the person in the universe best suited to have it. So they leave the blade with him, and then they leave because he's happy in Weird World. So he's in this alternative dimension, but he does have his blade, but the Avengers are no longer going to be hunting him. And when they're there, by the way, he puts up an amazing fight, and the Avengers has some real star members at the time. It's got Captain America the lead. It also has Deadpool in it. So he's obviously a great fighter, and when the blade is really driving him crazy and he has inspiration, to fight off the people he's fighting, he can do so even without killing anyone. The reason I said that I think the writers probably knew this was so heavily influenced by Lord of the Rings, like the concept of the Ebony Blade, is first of all, his horse is named Aragorn. He gets another horse given to him by the Lady of the Lake. That's a character in Arthur's stories, but he meets her. And that horse's name is Strider. Which, if you didn't know, is Aragorn's other name that he's given in episode 
episode in the very first movie or the first book, Fellowship of the Ring, Strider. In Weird World, he has a room where he's just holding all these different artifacts that are coming through the portal into Weird World from the primary universe or regular Earth. And one of the items, mean, there's a pinball machine, there's cans of soda, there's newspapers, but one of the items on the ground is a book that says Lord of the Rings. And obviously it was placed there. <laughs> placed there. Obviously it's intentional. You can tell by the placement and the fact that it has the title written out on it. Um, most recently, he, just to like kind of sum up what he's been doing lately, is he was recently in the Indestructible Hulk, issue number 12 from 2012. And what's cool is this was actually Sir Percy the Knight, because the, the Hulk at the time has to go through time. He's working with, I think it's S.H.I.E.L.D., but he's going through time and space to try and stop some terrorist. And so at one point, he has to go back to the time of King Arthur and fight somebody and he's working with the Black Knight and it's pretty interesting uh, it's nice to see the old knight aesthetic taken into what art looks like now because this was written and drawn in 2012 so that was pretty nice to see uh, it was nice to see a callback to Sir Percy and not just see Dane Whitman again and again before that he was a part a pretty a pretty hefty part of M13 in Captain Britain, which was a story from 2008. This took place during the Secret Invasion storyline. If you don't know what that is, essentially the scrolls, which are shape-shifting evil aliens, they actually appear in the Captain Marvel film, but they're not evil in that one. But they're evil in the comics and they're trying to take over the world, so they're basically taking over individuals, you know, getting rid of them and taking their place. Because some scrolls can even imitate superpowers and stuff. So that's what's happening. And in this storyline, basically not just Captain Britain and the Black Knight, but a few others, they release demons into Britain to get rid of the scrolls. And then most of the story is them dealing with getting the demons locked up again and getting all the evil spirits removed. And this includes vampires and beasts and, you know, magical artifacts. And to that I say, absolutely, I will take it. I mean, this is the Black Knight, so it's sort of perfect. Plus, his, not that his religion really comes into it, but he did fight in the Crusades, so... Right, he's probably most likely a Christian, and that's something that definitely can be discussed because religion doesn't come up too much in Marvel comics, and I think it's I think it's refreshing when it does. At this point, his character has changed a lot. He he's almost changed nationalities in the sense that he has so much patriotism and that patriotic spirit towards England and Britain. But also, aesthetically, his wardrobe is now jeans and a white t-shirt and the black leather jacket with his emblem on it. The only thing from his original costume, or the costume he's been wearing for so long that he retains, is the helmet. So that's kind of a cool look in itself, kind of like a motorcyclist guy, you know, like with the leather jacket but then the helmet, which is like a knight's helmet. So I'm okay with that. His personality has changed a little bit. He's a little bit goofier, and he's clowning around a little bit. And we, he explains later that he does that to combat the curse. He thinks if he doesn't take anything seriously, then he won't take the Ebony Blade's curse seriously, and he'll be able to resist the temptation whenever it tells him to start killing people or you know spilling more blood. He does have a love interest in this one, 
who basically he takes on as a squire and it's a Muslim doctor. So that's pretty interesting because he meets her parents at one point and her father's like, didn't you fight in the Crusades? And you could see how that would be potentially a lot of conflict and might uh, have some, you might have some inhibitions or something about him taking on your daughter as either well, a lover or squire, either one. I can see why it might be bothersome. But so this storyline does a really good job of getting into the character considering he is not the primary character. It really is Captain Britain. And then arguably there's some others who are even bigger than the Black Knight. But he does a great job of really stealing a show whenever he's in a scene. We find out pretty far into the comic that he actually isn't even using the actual ebony blade and it's been replaced Dracula, the, the vampire Dracula, put something else in its place that he would use, and it was also telling him to spill blood, and it wanted blood, but you find out that the real ebony blade is in Wakanda, so he's able to go get it, and as soon as he asks for it from their queen, which is Storm, she gives it right back. It's not like some kind of point of conflict or anything, but that does happen in that run. Both of those stories, both the Hulk you know, one-off that he, that Sir Percy appears in, and then this M13 story. Both of these actually occur before the run where he's in Weird World that I told you about, the one that is named for him from 2015. Unfortunately, the Black Knight series from 2015 was the very first post-Secret Wars run to be canceled. If you're not familiar with Secret Wars, Secret Wars Two or Secret Wars 2015, rather. There have been a few stories called Secret Wars, but the one from 2015, it reset a lot in the Marvel Universe, so it was... I mean, I love it, and maybe one day we'll even just talk about Secret Wars. I think it's a phenomenal story. But it restarted a lot of things, and you had all this potential to set up new stories and new situations for beloved characters, and they did that, and, you know, this is how we got Weird World, and it made it five issues, much like the initial run, and then it was done. And the writers now consider it a limited series. And in my opinion, it does tell a pretty self-contained story. So I don't think it's just them trying to accept the fact that their run's been canceled, which I'm sure they would prefer not. But that is the situation where those stories have been told. Uh, that story has been told, and we're not probably going to get any more from the Weird World story of uh, Black Knight. And that's where he is now. We haven't really seen him in much since then. So... Alright, I think that would be a good time to wrap up. We are getting over an hour here. There's another quotation that I want to share. And it looks like I might be starting our introductions and starting our conclusions each episode with a quotation. If you hate that, let me know. And if I don't hear anything, probably going to keep doing it. So this is something that he says in issue number two of MI13 and Captain Britain from 2008, the one we were just discussing. Basically, he thinks he, he might potentially die. It's not written too dark because you're pretty confident he's not. But he is in for the fight of his life. This is before the demons are released and they're fighting the scrolls. And this bridge that he's on is practically being overwhelmed. And he says, come on, fight for the lady, for the lady. You know who you're fighting? This is an Avenger you're fighting. Even if they don't want me. Even if the world's gone to hell and Captain Britain's dead and my love forgot me and nobody's a hero anymore. The Ebony Blade still says hello. Okay, unpacking that. The phrasing's a little weird. It's a little strange, especially the Ebony Blade still says hello. I wish it could be the perfect 
epic quotation to finish off the show, but it's a little wonky. However, it illustrates the point that we wanted to talk about earlier, which is his cause, it comes and goes. He doesn't even know what he's fighting for sometimes, but that doesn't necessarily matter because he believes in the Ebony Blade and he also believes in his ability to do the right thing. So in this, he's saying, I I used to be an Avenger. This is an Avenger you're fighting. But even if they don't want me, and even if the world's gone to hell, because during this scroll invasion, it was seen as a cataclysmic event. Like it was, it was a huge storyline. There's tons of comics that go into it that you'd probably enjoy if you're interested. Do look up Secret Invasion. So even if the world's gone to hell, and Captain Britain, he says, Brian, if Captain Britain's dead, who is like obviously Europe's Captain America, honestly, like he's a big deal. He's seen as very powerful and. He's very memorable, he's sort of iconic, a big part of their stories over there, across the pond, as it were. Uh, He says, and even if my love forgot me, so this is Cersei and him are gone, and they're still bonded, so he's not going to be able to forget her, but he says, even if my love forgot me, and nobody is a hero anymore. So you don't know who to trust, you don't know if anyone is a hero, because many of them have been replaced with scrolls. The Ebony Blade is still there. It's a constant. He still got it. He still says hello. That's the phrasing I'm saying. It's a little strange. But basically, the Black Knight believes in the Ebony Blade more than he believes in himself. His cause changes over the years a, a few different times. First, he's fighting for King Arthur. Later, he's fighting for the Avengers. Later, he's fighting for Britain. Eventually, he just is fighting for the Ebony Blade itself. That's what happens in the 2015 story is he's no longer fighting for the right or the ability to use the Ebony Blade to protect anybody or do something honorable. He's just fighting for the Ebony Blade. So he's trying to believe in something. And that plus the the lineage that is, is going on where, you know, it is being passed from family member to family member down the bloodline. That is what makes these stories so timeless and unlike any other stories that a Marvel hero has. He started out in the 50s, so he actually predates so many famous and iconic Marvel heroes. So it makes sense that his cause would change, but the tool he uses to fight for the cause does not. And I think that's really admirable. Basically, we all have gifts that can corrupt or save, and it's up to the individual to wield their blade justly. The point And the challenge and the thing that they present so well in these stories, especially in the last 10 years or so, is that you've got to use it to save and redeem people, not for needless destruction. So to go back to his very first appearance, even if we don't know what the cause is, we can commit ourselves to something honorable for whatever purpose we can. Just because the Black Knight is a little specific when it comes to family lineage, It doesn't mean that that's how we have to take it. That's not necessarily the moral to the story. It's that you leave a legacy and you leave a cause and you leave an ability to fight the cause. Not necessarily for multiple generations of family. It's it's, it's not meant to be so cut and dry. Like the Ebony Blade curse itself, it's messy, it's a bit complicated and conflicted, but finding a cause or something that you consider to be your personal mission is definitely not the easiest thing to do. Maybe it's not going to be something 
where you're lucky enough to inherit something or for your family to be able to put you on this path. But you do have to commit yourself to a cause because sometimes just having a direction will lead you to the right path. It will lead you to a path. And if you're brave enough and you're clever enough and determined enough to keep going when things seem like it's a dead end and to just keep trying when you don't know if you're necessarily going the right way, eventually every road you take is going to take you somewhere. And if there's anything that we learn from these stories, it's that somewhere is just as good as anywhere else to build yourself a home. Well, everybody, that's going to do it for episode number two on The Black Knight. I'm absolutely thrilled once again that you stuck around and wanted to hear about this character that I think is, again, going to be more important as we continue into phase four of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think that we'll probably see him in some more comics, too. So, like I said, it's probably a good time to begin learning about the character. Um, I will go ahead and say that we are welcoming conversation and questions and even recommendations and suggestions on Twitter. So if you'd like to contact the show, feel free to tweet at us uh, at Marvel A number two Z on Twitter. Again, that's Marvel M-A-R-V-E-L A number two Z on Twitter.com. Um, I will go ahead and announce that the uh, character we're going to be talking about next time will be Carnage. Carnage is a Spider-Man villain from the 90s. I think he's going to break up uh, the fact that, you know, we've done two heroes now. I thought it might be time to switch things up and do a villain. He's got a very... Uh, well, there's some stuff that makes him really unique and that his motivations are quite simple and straightforward. And sometimes a big part of creating a villain is making him sympathetic. But he is not really meant to be sympathetic. And... Maybe now's a good time to discuss Carnage because we're getting movies coming out like The Joker where the lead of the film, the star, is not really maybe meant to invoke too much sympathy because you see that they are a psychopath. And if there's anything that Carnage or Cletus uh, Cassidy is in these old comics and even the modern ones, he is a psychopath. So please join in uh, next time. We're going to discuss that Spidey villain. And as for now, happy reading.